Welcome to another edition of BartCast, a podcast series curated by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. Learn more at bcm-net.org. In order to dig in our heels, we've got to delve into our stories, and when we delve into our stories, uh, that involves inevitably excavating our hearts. Uh, So this is the third exploration into Mark's Gospel this morning. Uh, And it's uh, maybe maybe the toughest piece of all. Uh, So let's let's get on it. Um, There there is an old biblical story that sets the theme that I'd like to look at today in our last scripture and analysis session. It's the ancient tale of God giving the people manna and quail to eat uh, to survive in the wilderness, alluded to in worship today. Uh, you always got to listen hard to that Jim Perkins poetry because there's a lot there. You got to pay attention to that. And uh, thank you, Tevin, for not only um, citing it but showing it to us. Um, this uh, this story is a song line that as uh, you all know, is very important to us. It's important to you. It's the foundation of our Sabbath economics work that we've been doing for the last 20 years. But here I want to reference not the more well-known version of this story taken from Exodus 16, but rather what we might call the minority report that one finds in the book of Numbers, chapter 11. book of Numbers is known to you as the book you've never, ever touched in, in the Bible. <laughs> There's just no marginal notes in your Bible, if, if you had your Bible. Um, so in this version, uh, the people work, um, be, the people begin to con- compulsively over-consume the gift that God has given them. They worked all day and night, gathering quail, at least anyone gathered was ten homers. You know, you go on the web, and, and people do the math on this kind of stuff. How much was a homer? And... And how much is 10 homers? And there, there are people, oftentimes fundamentalists, who do the work on this. And it's, it's kind of interesting. Uh, one dude figured out it's 58 gallons per capita. 58 gallons of quail. I don't know, buckets, right? Yeah, right. But that, anyway, that's a lot of damn quail. Um, <clears throat> pheasant, common ground bird in the ancient Middle East. However much it was, it was way too much. So the story tells us that in the middle of their big meal, I just got to keep looking back because we just got a new little unit and I just got to make sure it's working. It sounds like it is. Uh, In the middle of the big meal, people start keeling over with a plague, forks in hand, so to speak. This uh, inspires a place name, which is the point of etiological tales. And the place name is Kibroch Hatava, which means the old storyteller tells us the graves of greed. Uh, apropos to yesterday's study, Jay, some biblical scholars have proposed that Kibroth refers to a stone circle. That's the graves piece. Um, a cairn, or, or, or some people think they've recently discovered a, a Chalcolithic, 4th millennium BC megalithic burial site. Um, In any case, this ancient tale is naming a phenomenon that we might call the the, the plague of unrestrained desire, or the compulsive addictive inability to set limits, or more poetically, the disease of our time and place and people, affluenza. If ever there were an old wise tale that speaks to our condition, as Quakers say, in the U.S. in the 21st century, which may be our last, this is it. From our beginnings as a nation, we have taken fateful turns toward being a continental empire, relentlessly exploiting both nature and people, something the great historian William Appleman Williams chronicled in his brilliant overview of American history entitled Empire as a Way of Life. You ever want to have a little study group to learn the story of this country? I highly recommend this book. It's now about 30 years old. Uh, And after becoming a continental empire, we became an international empire, and the result, 
as as a result, our elites have become uh, unaccountably rich and powerful. And in that process, all of us have learned to overconsume the gift of God. And as a result, the graves of greed are haunting us. They're haunting us. First, they haunt us from the past. Because the first to die from this plague were indigenous people here and abroad whose lands and resources were stolen to feed our insatiable appetites. And slaves who themselves were stolen and poor people of all kinds. They got it first and worst. But now we too are also haunted not only by this past, but by the future that we have wrought. Because our imperial greed is digging a global grave called climate catastrophe. James Spate is a longtime mainstream environmental policy leader. And ten years ago, he published what I think is still the most straightforward account of where we are right now in terms of the ecological crisis. And I want to invite somebody who's got a strong voice and good vision to just read this out loud. You know, and here we are 10 years later, and, and, and we would be so pleased if we could have just frozen all those rates at 2008 levels. Michael Northcutt is a theologian. He's same, saying the same thing theologically in an important book that he wrote five years later called A Political Theology of Climate Change. I really recommend this book to those of you who are looking uh, to try to make sense of things. It similarly outlines the most salient and disturbing characteristics of what he calls the geopolitics of slow catastrophe. Somebody else with a voice and vision, just read that little quote. Over the last five years since this text, the prognosis, of course, has only become increasingly dire and the timetable increasingly short. I know you all know this. In fact, you're, most of you are familiar with these slides because I use them all the time. But here's the deal. We keep doing exactly what we are doing. We keep doing it. For purposes of this... Uh, Today's rant, I will refer to that stuck place, that repetition compulsion, at the intimate level of our own daily lives as our inability or unwillingness to stop driving and using fossil fuels. Paul Kingsnorth is one of the most thoughtful ecological writers in the UK. If you follow his work, particularly around dark ecology, uh, the Dark Mountain Project, he's an artist, he's a philosopher. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, he, he talks about, uh, and again, this was, was written 10 years ago, sitting on the desk in front of me are a set of graphs. The horizontal axis of each graph is identical. So think of him as an old theologian looking at texts, trying to figure out the meaning of the world. And these graphs, the horizontal axis is identical. It represents time from years 1750 to 2000. The graphs show variously human population levels, CO2 concentration in the atmosphere, exploitation of fisheries, destruction of tropical forests, paper consumption, number of motor vehicles, number of motor vehicles, number of motor vehicles, water use, rate of species extinction, total gross domestic product. And what grips me, he says, about these graphs and somebody with voice and vision, read that if you would. What 
He goes on to say the root cause of all these trends is the same. A rapacious human economy, which is bringing the world to the brink of chaos. We know this. Some of us even try to stop it from happening. And yet every single trend continues to get worse. And still, we drop. The statistical curve Kings North talks about is called, in the business, the hockey stick effect. A Canadian thing, I guess. Hockey stick effect, right? Uh, here's that same curve across some 24 different economic and ecological indices from habitat destruction to number of McDonald's restaurants worldwide. Uh, 2015, of course, was another year when the levels of dominant greenhouse gases reached new peaks. The same with ocean warming and acidification, which are accelerating the melting polar ice caps and accelerating the release of methane into the atmosphere, which in turn is leading to sea level rises, just as folk in Louisiana and Micronesia. Our disastrous re-engineering of the planet has invoked this new definition of hubris. We are in the age of the Anthropocene, and still we drive. And the most dramatic hockey stick of all is the surface temperature rise of the planet, as you know. These are all government statistics, by the way, which tend to be on the conservative side. Last year was the hottest year on record, and so is our winter here. And of course, if you're getting bitter cold, that's just the flip side of the same global ecological phenomenon, which befuddles somebody like Trump. Um, again, I know this information is not new to anybody here. Um, but as long as we keep driving, friends, we need to keep looking at this. Keep looking at these same numbers over and over and over and again, because they're a mirror to us, an inconvenient mirror. The data is in. The graves of greed are upon us. Of course, not upon all of us equally, because as it was in the haunting of the past, poor folk and people of color are getting it first and worst. They're already feeling it existentially. It's all unfolding before our eyes, as it did for us in this Thomas fire. And all of you in the rising generation, I know you feel it keenly. And still, we drive. Hard times call for hard texts. So let's dip into one of the hardest and strangest passages of all of the New Testament. Although an appropriate one for this first full week of Lent. It comes from Mark chapter 9. Part of the second round of what I call Jesus' discipleship catechism of the cross. This text is the gospel, if you're plotting your sermon calendar. It's the gospel reading for September 30th. I urge you not to miss the opportunity this fall to work with it in your faith community when it comes around like a dark and disturbing gift. Our passage starts out innocently enough <clears throat> with one of Jesus' emphatic amen statements. At first glance, it seems to be a simple affirmation that every act of compassion or solidarity, no ma matter how small, matters. Of course, offering water was no small thing in the desert environments of antiquity where water was exceedingly scarce and precious, and as it is becoming again in our world. That's nice, but there's more, because upon closer examination, we see that it's actually we Christians who are on the receiving end of these acts of kindness. Hmm. Anyone who offers us any sort of help, Jesus vows, will not go unrecognized in the kingdom. That's a counsel to humility. That's Jesus reminding us y'all need a lot of help from any quarter. And the fact is we do receive a lot of it, often without knowing it, usually without acknowledging it. It's a reminder of our inevitable dependence on the humanity of others that underlines that we are all sustained by the economy of grace, uh, that we are all vulnerable and this theme of vulnerability now becomes the theme which Jesus spins out. But the mood of this teaching shifts abruptly, becoming for us a text of terror, as Phyllis Tribble so famously called it. Jesus turns now to, expo to expose the flip side of the coin. If all kindnesses are tracked, so too is every violation. 
He cautions sternly that whosoever causes just one of these little ones to sin will be held accountable. Now here the micron represents anyone who is radically vulnerable. The children of war, the invisible poor, those who suffer without media attention or political capital, climate refugees from Katrina to Kiribati, from Superstorm Sandy to Syria, to scandalize. Scandalizo is the Greek word. It has its root meaning to snap, shut in a trap. It comes from the hunting parlance. Sin was always relational in antiquity. Human beings and their innate dignity are the primary victims of violation, injustice, or oppression, but of course so is all of creation. Jesus is here establishing a new moral barometer. The welfare of the least is that which determines, determines the health of any social system, of any institution. It's the health of the least. And of course, the least today includes all of creation. And our affluenza, just going on with life as normal, continues to scandalize vulnerable people and a vulnerable planet everywhere. Trump's budget? Absolutely. Corporate pirating? Mm-hmm. But still, we drop. So odious are these violations, says Jesus, that uh, he's got to draw on an image that was likely circulating among first century peasants as a metaphor for bringing the mighty down from their thrones, the demise of the powerful, which peasants and poor people for all of time have always dreamt. Interestingly, we encounter this image in the book of Revelation. It is the millstone cast into the sea, describing the fall of Babylon. Because the Roman international political economy turned human beings into property for buying and selling, Revelation 18. It's a riff that combines the old Exodus trope of Pharaoh's army getting drowned with a modern mafioso collar. It's drop dead serious. Oppression has consequences. Also for the oppressor. Mark's Jesus sees the, uses the image here to warn us not to act in imperial or imperious ways. I suppose if it weren't a constant temptation to human beings in general, no warning would be needed. But in our life, in our world, in our culture of affluenza, it's needed every single day, this warning, because still we drive. But it, don't worry, it gets worse. Because the next part of the teaching is by any account the strangest and troubling in all of scripture. But it makes clear that Jesus means absolute business. This terrifying triplet calls people of conscience to amputate our own hands, feet, and eyes if they offend. Mark here seems to be combining the Pauline metaphor of the community as a body. So this is a a political metaphor. Uh, remember that the hand cannot say to the eye, I have no need of you in 1 Corinthians 12. Combining that Pauline principle with the Pauline principle of not causing the weaker member to be scandalized, Romans 14. In ancient anthropology, the body parts so named were symbols of moral agency. So this is not just an exhortation to self-restraint. It is a dramatic imperative to stop doing shit that causes harm. Like driving. The second part of the triple refrain concerns the inextinguishable fires. The Greek word is asbeston. The inextinguishable fires of Gehenna. This alludes, as you probably know, to the public dump in Jerusalem, which was always smoldering. It was located in the valley of Hinnom, south of Jerusalem, and that's where dead animals and other unclean refuse were dumped, the stuff people didn't want to deal with. 
They dot our landscape everywhere, out of sight, out of mind. It was reputed, by the way, to be a site where children back in the day had been sacrificed to Moloch. Jesus' metaphor also alludes to the very last line in the book of Isaiah, which articulates the dire consequences of human defiance of the laws of God, which is to say the laws of nature. And the consequences are that we have started a fire that we can't put out, headed toward four degrees Celsius global temperature rise like lemmings. Gehenna, of course, still exists today in every, every trash heap in the third world where poor folks try to scavenge a desperate living out of the refuse of the rich. Some of you have seen these in the Philippines or in Central America. What was it Victor Hugo said? The paradise of the rich is made out of the hell of the poor right now. Actually, Luke's old parable of Lazarus and Dives made the same point long ago. And Jesus is underlining it now. He says, if we want to relieve the hell of the poor, we better start amputating the paradise of the rich. Now, this gruesome choice that we are given in this text, again, I didn't write this stuff. The gruesome choice between self-amputation and smoldering fire is needless to say a teaching avoided equally by modern liberals and fundamentalists. Make a note, never believe a two-handed biblical literalist. (laughs) But these images become both comprehensible and poignant to our ears if we read them through the lens of the battle with addiction. A recovering addict, for example, knows in her flesh the searing truth that kicking a habit is very much like cutting off a part of oneself. You can still feel the rush like a phantom limb. Recovery is a life or death discipline. And I believe this metaphor above any other Jesus offered to us captures that urgency, that utter seriousness. Do you know the the work of psychologist Gerald May? He wrote a really important book called Addiction and Grace 30 years ago. 30 years ago. We've been in this shit show for a while. He discusses the notion of sin as a power analogous to addiction. We succumb because the energy of our desire becomes attached, attachment. We succumb to it, whether it's behaviors, objects, people. It's the process that enslaves our desire and creates the state of addiction. He identifies two classes. The attractive, right, that which attaches to our compulsion, and the aversive, that which is attaches to our repulsion. Um, <clears throat> and he explores their psychological, neurological, and theological character. The process of recovery, therefore, often feels like part of oneself. The addicted, codependent part is being Amputated. Any struggle, he says, with addiction must involve deprivation. In our Sabbath economics work over the past 20 years, we've argued that um, it's not recognized widely enough in the addiction recovery field itself that the epidemic of private or personal addiction in our society, and it is an epidemic, is deeply tethered to the ubiquity of public addiction. They are mirrors of each other. On Tuesday, we reminded ourselves of King's diagnosis of those public addictions, white supremacy, imperial militarism, affluenza. In our society, personal embrace of these pathologies, think of flyovers at the Super Bowl, are rewarded, much less not shamed, rewarded by the dominant economy and political system. That makes recovery really hard. So we need to be alternative communities of a covenant. I was going to show you a graph of us attempting to map the way in which personal and collective addiction mirror each other, but nobody can read that anyway. Um, But that's the kind of mapping we we need to do. Um, 
we, we get addicted to money, we get addicted to stuff, we get addicted to work, but ultimately those are all um, the compulsive repetition of a fantasy of limitlessness. That's core to the American ethos. And at the same time, we're anxious about it. And so we keep taping, taking steps to quell the anxiety, um, <clears throat> says uh, Paul Wachtel in The Poverty of Affluence. Uh, but that only uh, leads to behavior that undermines our security and further accelerates our self-defeating pattern. That's an addictive spiral. Um, Thoughtful social theorists have seen this coming for a long time. For example, in a classic 1973 book by psychologist Carl Menninger called Whatever Became of Sin, he caricatures American progress. He says, we glowed, we gloried, we prospered, we preempted, we evicted, we extended, we consolidated, we succeeded. And we shut our eyes to all that was unpleasant about these processes too busy to discern the misery we were creating everywhere, too smug to see the devastation we were wreaking, too greedy to recognize the waste and inequity and ugliness and immorality. This is 1973. And then he says, suddenly we awoke from our pleasant dreaming with a fearful realization that something is wrong. This is a psychotherapist discerning this from the people sitting in front of him. Well, what is wrong, says Kentucky farmer and theologian Wendell Berry, what is wrong is that we live by robbing nature and our standard of living demands that the robbery shall continue. We're so captive to our illusions and excesses and appetites that we can no longer imagine the world differently. The great obstacle, says Berry, is simply this, and nobody says it more succinctly, the conviction that we cannot change because we are dependent upon what is wrong. He says that's our conviction. That is what we live by. And then he speaks the truth, which is why he gets a portrait of Americans who tell the truth. That is the addict's excuse, and it will not do. So it's the place we have to start cutting. Of all our New Testament witnesses, it was the political prisoner Paul who reflects most deeply on this very struggle. The wages of addiction are death, he proclaims in Romans, but in Christ we are liberated to life and justice. In turn, Romans 7 is an extended meditation confession on his own internal and social struggles of captivity. Doesn't it sound exactly like someone struggling with addiction? So we might conclude that if a representative analog for sin in a third world context is oppression, the inability of people to say yes to life because of deprivation and injustice, then surely the corresponding first world analog for sin is addiction, the inability to say no because of captivity to pathological desires. Uh, you met the Kinsers yesterday, and when I was down in Central America in the mid-90s with the Kinsers, we did a, a Presbyterian Encuentro in uh, Honduras, poor Honduras. Uh, it was a celebration of 100 years of Presbyterian mission in Honduras, and Elsa Tamez was posted up and taken names. And uh, I got the opportunity to go back and forth with Elsa, and we're, it was half uh, North Americans and half Central Americans, and we were going back and forth, and I proposed this idea that sin in a condition of uh, injustice like Honduras is oppression, but sin in a context of affluenza like North America is addiction. And the North American white guys popped up and said, no, 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 that's, that's, you can't say that, that's, that's too, uh, and all the Central Americans, oh, yes, you do have to talk about that, I'm sorry. <laughs> they could see our pathology clearer than we can, obviously. Uh, well, there's, there's, uh, there's great uh, literature out on this, um, and I'm, I'm going to skip a lot of that because I want to um, bring up here uh, a couple of folks who are really working uh, on this piece. Um, and so if uh, Solveig and Tom 
Eric, if you just come up and, and bring a couple of chairs. Um, I'd like Solve to um, talk just for a, a few minutes about um, her work uh, in eco-faith recovery. So that's work that's happening, as it were, on, on the political end. Let's, let's bring that up on the stage. Uh, and then Tommy, if you were in uh, Lindsay and Tommy's uh, workshop the other day, you know that they're doing really fine work working with people interpersonally. Let's, let's, let's have you all not on opposite sides here, but on the same side. Just come sit here, Tom. You're fine. Yeah. <laughs> or, or as uh, Art Cribs yesterday when Rose came, came up here said, oh, a rose between two thorns. <laughs> um, I'd just like each of you just to, to talk for, for a minute. We can, we can use this too. We're going to try to use your chair and we're going to see what happens. That's cool. I think Solvay has a touch. Um, how, however you want to do it, just, just a couple of kind of talking points based on your work with eco-faith recovery and, and Tommy Earl's work with addiction recovery in, in families. Yeah. Um, okay. I need to start with just a quick story because uh, the first time that I met Tom was spring of 2013. And it was the, uh, the week after literally the week after I went to my first adult children and non-alcoholics meeting. So I entered recovery and met you at the same time. Or I'm sure you got it wrong. Um, so in 2009, a very good friend of mine, Robin Hartwig, um, yay, Robin, woo! Um, she, she was given the vision for um, for a community and organization called Eco Faith Recovery. And it came out of her own struggle, and this, this struggle right here, um, experience of um, addictive patterns in her own life and relationships, and seeing, whoa, 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 wait, this is so much bigger than me, so much bigger than us. Um, what does it mean when the entire culture is addicted? Is culture, um, what does it mean to go into recovery collectively? 12 step work, Tom was sharing about that. I've experienced it too. Absolutely critical and life transforming. Um, and yet, it's more than that. Because individualism, even though it's not, it's not a 12 step work isn't just individualism, but that's that's where it starts and that's where it lands. There's not a public analysis in 12 step work. But when we gotta do that public analysis, how do we do that? Long story, I'd love to talk to anybody about the history of ego faith recovery, but um, over the years, what we discerned were the practices that we identified that we were doing that helped us go into collective recovery. And what we discern kind of through um, lots of trial and error and lots of, um, just lots of, lots of work, was um, that when the culture is addicted, collective recovery looks like leadership. Hmm. Hmm. But not just any leadership, right? We have plenty of leaders, yeah. right? <laughs> um, and so, and so we're, we're, we've been like refining, nuancing. What are we talking about then? What's the difference that we're, lo we're looking for? And so, um, so kind of the best language that I'm kind of working with right now is eco-faith recovery is through seven practices for awakening leadership. Um, we're developing eco-spiritually and relationally grounded communities of conscious co-leaders. Communities of conscious careers. 
conscious is a huge word in that because the destructive, addictive powers we're working with, conscious. Conscious and strategic. We have to be as conscious in order to go into recovery. There are seven practices, and then I'll pass it over to Tom. Uh, seven practices, four dimensions of each of those. Um, thanks to uh, uh, Travis and Kristen for handing those out. I hope you all got a copy of this. Well, but you can take this with you. There are some more at the table um, in the in the book or in the bookstore. Um, seven practices. Accessing spiritual power practice number one. Uh, we cannot. We're up against the powers and principalities. So even our best attempts at strategic organizing are nothing unless we are accessing the deeper power. Um, accessing spiritual power. Developing relationships. Discovering our stories. Mentoring one another. Acting together. Reflecting on our actions. And restoring balance all along the way. As you can see, as you flip through that booklet, you'll see that there are also four dimensions to every one of those practices. Because we realize we can't just do it on a personal level. We can't just become really awesome, amazing leaders alone. Or individually, even like an awesome group of amazing leaders. But we can't do that. So we have to do it on the personal level, the interpersonal level, the community level, whatever communities we're part of. And then we have to practice these practices in the public sphere because that's where it all comes down. So, um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask some of my other folks here um, from Eco-Based Recovery in just a minute, so be thinking about it. Um, I'm gonna pass it back over to Tom to talk about um, his recovery work, and then I hope we can come back and weave it together. Thanks, so Thanks for bringing us back to 2013, too. Um, I, uh, in my own journey of recovery, I uh, look at addiction uh, as a cord of three strands that just really are tightly knit together. Uh, and the first strand is the, the, the public addiction, some of them that we've all named, some of them that Uncle Chet named this morning for us. Um, but most important in my own life uh, is white supremacy and patriarchy. And I understand those. Um, as demonic, um, and I understand my own exorcism from those uh, to be a, a lifetime journey. Uh, as my, my good friend Nick Peterson uh, calls this the process of de-godding whiteness, uh, because it is a, a form of supremacy. And, uh, and so, and, and those uh, deeply affect the other two strands. The second strand uh, in my life uh, would be my pretty recent um, Al-Anon journey. Uh, and in an Al-Anon recovery, uh, I, I recently heard it defined as uh, an addiction to the addict. Uh, and, and in my life, uh, a, a, a huge, intense way that that started was in, in high school and college, um, playing for coaches who were abusive alcoholics. Um, and those were the, the most important um, um, adults in my life uh, at a highly impressionable age. I mean, I was in adolescence. And so um, that kind of um, dutiful, uh, obligatory, um, a, a, a woman in, in my Al-Anon meeting recently um, ended her share by saying, that she has this constant uh, voice in her head that says, you've got to pay, you've got to pay, you've got to pay. And that's been most of my life. Uh, this, this idea that um, I don't deserve anything, um, that I need to earn everything that I ever get. And, um, and it, it has played out uh, in, in big ways. Um, and, and that leads to the third strand uh, of, of just kind of 
the basic addictions that we, we know of. Um, and, and I appreciate Chad um, throwing Gerald May up on the, on the PowerPoint. And Gerald May talks about the fact that everybody's addicted uh, and everybody is in dire need of grace. And, uh, and my, my main addiction that I would say is, is uh, to performance or achievement uh, and, uh, and seeking out love and, uh, and acceptance through those things. And that's really played out in work. Um, uh, you know, very common for me to work uh, 80 hours a week, um, growing up as a teacher and a coach and administrator, but also um, doing ministry and being an associate pastor. Um, and and that, that is like deep in me, grandfather, father, uh, passing it along. Um, but also uh, to, to social media um, and, and, uh, and email. And that form of addiction for me is the kind of like um, vigilantly checking email, social media for likes, for acceptance, for, for finding that value. Um, I don't think so, anybody else has that problem. Yeah, so I'm, I'm alone in that, but I'm okay. Uh, so thank God for Lent, uh, for giving me the uh, permission to, to give up, give that up, and, uh, and so who knows, but, but that's going to be a constant journey. Um, and then just the second part of this thing, like the way forward for me, uh, just a few things initially that I'll mention here. Therapy has been gigantic. Uh, for me, and I've, and I've had spiritual direction in the past, which has been really good for me, but therapy uh, is, has been vital. It's taken it a step further because it addresses the deeper pain in, in me. Uh, and my deep pains are, are feelings of being alone and unknown and devalued. Uh, and it's those deep pains that like drive everything. So, so in order for me to address um, these addictions, we got to get to the roots, right? Because we are radicals, um, and, and, it's, and it's getting to that thing. Um, and then the Al-Anon meetings, um, uh, Lindsay and I had a wonderful conflict about a month ago, uh, and in that conflict, I came to realize, um, and it was all about me going to the Al-Anon meeting or not, um, but I came to realize that Al-Anon meetings for me are non-negotiable. Um, I, I have to be there for me. Um, and, and it's like the, the very interesting tension of being in Al-Anon um, is, is that like, I'll honor every commitment for everybody else. But when it comes to doing something for myself, I'm the first to schlep it off. Um, and and that, is a, that is a deep thing for, for, for Al-Anon folks. Uh, and then the last thing that I'll just share uh, I have a, a daily morning practice of feelings journal um, that, I, that I got inspired to do from Walter Wing, um, who's, uh, his wife published a, a, a series of journals called Just Jesus right after he died. And in those journals, Walter Wing talks about how when he was a young adult, he had to carry around a small journal everywhere he went because uh, as a white male growing up in Texas, um, he, he had no idea what he was feeling, ever. He had just repressed, repressed, repressed. He was not allowed to have feelings. Um, and so every time he, he felt something, he had to write it down. And he did that for seven years. Uh, and so I, of course, deeply resonated with that. Uh, and, and so I, I journal feelings every morning uh, to, to try to get to that, to what is really going on. So. Thank you. So maybe just one more word. Yeah, one more word. Yeah.
chair, not necessarily. I just want to say that Sarah and Nathan and Dave Pritchett um, and Jacob, Jacob Taylor, and the new bio cohort. Um, we've been working with these practices a little bit, and so there's a lot of folks around here who have been working with eco faith recovery practices. And so I just invite you to please raise your hands, everybody. Dave back there. Um, yeah, just engage some conversation about, about them. And so you can hear a little bit more about how, how it really plays out and the power of the, of the practices um, in the different ways. And, um, and then feed that back to Equal Faith Recovery. Karen Nathan Nellman in Duluth, you know, shaped by Equal Faith in the Portland area. And uh, so we're, go we're going everywhere. Equal Faith is not uh, bound by geography. Um, so please, let's continue the conversation about this. Thanks. Let's uh, give it up for our spiritual accompanist. <clears throat> Just want to let uh, Jesus have the last word, and then we are going to. Um, uh, our break is going to consist of the magnificent photograph uh, and the magnificent uh, proposal in which uh, Brenneman is going to be down on his knee. Um, just want to end with a word of hope, because I know this is hard stuff. Um, Jesus ends um, the strangest of teachings with a rather stark aphorism. Everyone will be salted with fire. Super. But if we stay with his amputation metaphor, we realize that Jesus is assuring us that it is possible to heal in the painful work of recovery. Because, see, there's going to be scars in the wake of amputation. There's going to be blood. It's going to be painful. But it turns out that cauterization was an ancient medical practice still in use in some places, that involves creating burns on tissues to either close wounds or stop the bleeding. Fire. This is Jesus, the great physician here. Doctors as late as the 19th century would apply hot metal after amputation because the heat would make the blood clot. Yeah. Salt, meanwhile had a traditional medicinal use as well, including for oral and eye care, soaking stress to our muscles. We still use it. Skin irritation, allergies, bites. But there's more here because not only is salt like fire medicinal, but both salt and fire are liturgical. They are covenantal. You see, the priestly tradition stipulates that all sacrifices had to be accompanied by salt thrown into the fire. And salt symbolized, above all, a covenant of peace throughout the generations in the Mosaic Covenant. I believe that Mark is drawing upon these deep old symbols because recovery is hard work and painful work and searing work individually and collectively. But the alternative to that is to live in the hell of addiction and to inflict hell on other folk. So, as I uh, say our last words here, um, just as Rose sprinkled us with water yesterday, um, Kristen Snow is going to come around and, and, and just be throwing salt on y'all. You might want to, hopefully it doesn't get in your eyes, but if it does, it's actually good for you. Um, in our prayer and hope for recovery, what does it mean to be a church in recovery? What does it mean that the radical discipleship movement is committed to being a church in recovery in the full meaning of that double entendre, a church in recovery? Because the church has a lot to recover from and it is a community that only finds its true vocation in the work of recovery and in the liturgy, liturgy of celebrating recovery. That's what... Uh, CR means. So Recovery Church, RC, Celebrating Recovery, CR. 
Um, so just as I feel, friends, that we as a movement just cannot afford to abandon our song lines in Scripture, so do I feel we must not imagine that we can do without the church. We have the right and responsibility to insist that the church should be a church in recovery. But we also need church as a community of recovery until we stop driving. Which Brother Jaime, by the way, has already done. Talk to him about it. He gets around. The vocation of the church in recovery is this. To sustain a space that nurtures and empowers disciples to excavate our hearts by delving into our stories so that we can dig in our heels to learn practices that will enable us to shed the addict's excuse step by step by step. It's all about learning To do this work, no step is too small, no step is too large, so that we can build a new world, personally and politically, in the shell of the old. Amen. You have been listening to the Bartcast, produced by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. To find our resources or to donate to support the Bartcast, please go to chedmyers.org. Thank you for listening. Whoa.